0: I guess for all of us here this afternoon, to a greater or lesser extent, whether we know all the detail or whether we only know a smattering of the Christian faith, central to the idea is that is the end of Jesus' life he is crucified, the cross has become a symbol which has endured for the past two millennia and will continue to do so because it is right at the very heart of the message of the Bible. We're going to look at that this afternoon by not looking at the crucifixion of Jesus, which is perhaps a surprising thing. The end of this chapter, chapter 23, Jesus is crucified. But it's the bit before that I want to look at. It's the bit leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, I want to remind ourselves as well of why Luke is writing in this way. He says right at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 3, I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. I want you to be certain about this Jesus, and I want you to be certain about the things that you've been taught about this Jesus. And then, fascinatingly, what he then does is he tells the story of the life of Jesus with next-to- no explanation. It's interesting, isn't it? He just says, these are the things that happened. He did this, he said that. They responded in this way. He traveled here, he went there, he met this person, he did this miraculous thing. All of these events are the life of Jesus. But what he doesn't do, writing to Theophilus, he doesn't explain any of those events. Luke is writing at a point where people are understanding the deeper message of the life of Jesus. And what he's doing is he's just presenting this story uh, of the life of Jesus to Theophilus. And he's saying essentially gaze at it, just look at it. I was, I was, um, a a bit of an insight here. How How do you even prepare? To talk on a Sunday afternoon. The reality is, you just in for me, this is the way it works for me. I'm obviously know what text I'm working on. And then I'm thinking about it, I'll read it, I'm doing all sorts of other things. And it was cutting the grass uh, on, a, on a decent day at the beginning of the week when the idea just popped into my head. Have you ever heard? I remember the first time I saw one, a stereogram. Here's a stereogram. Up on the screen. Some of you will have seen it. I remember the first time I saw a stereogram, this mass of colours. And if you get yourself really close up, you can't do it because you've got to get your nose about three inches away from the screen up here. But if you get your nose right up close and kind of gaze and immerse yourself in all of those dots and colours and shapes, a three dimensional picture emerges they are amazing they they work better in print than on a screen but they do work on screens google it have a look at stereogram think about stereograms in relation to what we're about to talk about because I remember the first time I was watching looking at this stereogram my brother had this great big poster and he said just have a look at that and it just looked a mass of colors So get really close and just focus and focus. And I kind of lost myself in this picture. And then all of a sudden, these three-dimensional dinosaurs appeared all over this this sheet of paper. They are the most amazing things. I think Luke is saying to Theophilus, gaze at this life. Just keep looking at it. Keep pondering about uh, in relation to this life. Hold that thought in your head as we work through the next few minutes. This 25 verses is essentially the story of three named people, four named people, sorry, four named people and a whole rabble of people. We're going to look at them each one bit by bit. Jesus has just in the previous chapter, shared an intimate meal with his disciples. It's been one of those moments as we looked at it last week. It's the foundation for as we celebrate communion every month. That's the foundation. It's been really important, incredible moment in the life of Jesus and it remains so today. What did it say back then when Jesus was sharing this light, this meal with his disciples? He said, do this as you remember me. Now later on we see Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says, do you remember the words that Jesus says? Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, as we eat bread and we drink wine, there is significance because it is preparing for the event that is to come over the next hours. Literally the next hours. Jesus is going to be taken. He's going to be nailed to a cross. His body is going to be broken. His blood is going to be shed. And then for the next 2,000 years until He returns, the church are going to remember that every, every so often, however the pattern of the church is. It is that critical. In other words, even back then, when He is with His disciples in that room, Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen over the next few hours. He knows where where we're heading. He knows the events as they're going to unfold. It is not a surprise to Jesus as it does unfold. However, I think Luke writes these 25 verses in a way that encourages us to just gaze at this story, because by all intents and purposes, from a human perspective, it looks an out-of-control situation for Jesus. Sent to Pilate. Pilate is the fifth prefect under Tiberius. So, Tiberius is the Roman Caesar... Uh, he heads the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire were really smart, unlike other empires previously that had tried to suppress generally uh, the lands that they conquered. The Roman Empire, it seems, were really smart because what they encouraged was almost local leadership and leadership of their own people. We're going to see that in a minute. So, uh, Pilate is uh, prefect. In Jerusalem, he's the fifth person. We know that he is is a violent man. We know that's the kind of person he is. We saw it a little bit earlier in one of the previous incidents in the uh, book of Luke, where he describes how he had slaughtered people while they were uh, attending religious worship. That's the kind of guy he is. In chapter 2 and verse 3, we read this. So, Pilate... As Jesus comes to him, he says, so Pilate, ask Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? What a great question. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you've said so. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Jesus is stood in front of... The the whole crowd are absolutely baying for his life. You you might have seen some westerns where you get the lynch mob. uh, And it's kind of this kind of justice of the masses. The out of control masses. They are only just suppressed, the masses at this point. They are only just suppressed. They are suppressed by the Roman authorities and only just. They are suppressed only just by the Jewish authorities. They are on the verge of just doing the deed themselves. They want Jesus' blood. In the middle of that, they, because of the Roman rule, they send him to Pilate. They're not legally allowed to take Jesus' life. send him to Pilate and he says, I find no reason. For this man to be killed. I don't see anything that he has done that is wrong. It's a big thing to say, isn't it, in front of the masses. Later on, in verse uh, 24, we read this, in the, in the face of continued pressure, so Pilate decided to grant their demand what does that say how do we understand what's going on there his pilot he says i can't see anything and then right at the end of this account he says well you do what you want what does that say about him what does that say about this incident as far as pilot is concerned We know from one of the other accounts, his wife comes to him who has had terrible dreams in the night and has told him that this is a just man, don't have anything to do with him. As far as we understand, and this is remarkable, as far as we understand, Pilate's wife later on went on to become a believer in Jesus and a Christian within the Roman governing families. What an amazing transformation. Pilate's wife. And Pilate's wife speaks to him and says, do I have anything to do with him? And yet we have this man who has the life of Jesus in his hands. And he says, I can't see anything wrong. And then he says, do what you like. What does that say? I think what it points to is that the final analysis is just indifferent towards Jesus. He's just indifferent He's been confronted with this man. He's had the most amazing conversation. Imagine somebody who stands in front of you and you hold their life in your hands. You say, give me reason why I shouldn't execute you. And they say, virtually nothing. Surely that, that must have been an amazing experience for Pilate. And yet, at the end of it, he's fairly indifferent. I think there's a real picture there. And I guess that's what Luke is suggesting to Theophilus. In the light of looking at Jesus, in the light of experiencing Jesus, in that moment, Pilate could become indif- became indifferent. In the light of all of the evidence that has been stacked up over the uh, the few years since Jesus' life and the writing of this account, there will have been lots of people who have got to know about Jesus. There will have been lots of people who will have seen Jesus alive in his life, seeing the amazing things that he's done. And then ultimately, at the end of their experience of Jesus, they end up indifferent to him. They end up, well, it really didn't make that much of an impact on me. There are other things in life which are bigger. Wow, what a a dangerous place to be. Luke is saying, look, this is the Son of God present in the world. The one thing that we can't be with Jesus if we really see what Luke is saying is indifferent. We've either got to be opposed to Him because we think He's a charlatan, Or we've got to say He is who He is. And, And saying He is who He is has to have an impact on us. It's God in the world, Luke's saying. You can't be indifferent to that. And yet here we see this man, Pilate, who had all of that authority, who doesn't see Jesus as guilty, and yet ultimately is indifferent to Him. He passes Him on. I find that really interesting. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 8. Sorry, look at the, uh, earlier than that. Uh, if we go back to verse um, 6. On hearing this, when he heard that Jesus was from Galilee, on hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he heard that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at this time. Interesting little insight into the politics of Palestine at the time. Jerusalem is in the southern part of the uh, of the land, uh, and Galilee is up in the north, and I remember I mentioned earlier about the way the Romans used this idea of using their authority and local authorities. Herod was essentially the local guy, and he, he had local responsibility. For Galilee. And Herod looked after the southern area where Jerusalem was. And it happened that they were both in Jerusalem at the time. It's not that huge a distance uh, and the authorities would have easily traveled backwards and forwards. Herod is ruler up there, Herod Antipas. We know about him. We know that he's a ruler of Galilee. So he has authority over Jesus. This is great news for Pilate. This is a get out of jail card. This is one that I can just wash my hands of, hand him over to Herod. He's a Galilean. Herod is responsible for the Galileans. Now I can just pass it on. What am I doing tomorrow, Pilate might have thought. Oh yeah, I've got that great day planned. Pass him on to Herod. It's out of my hair. He passes him on to Herod. We read in verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. Herod is a fascinating character. We read about Herod earlier on. He's stolen his brother's wife and he was accused as somebody who was in in a sense, figurehead of the Jewish nation, a ruler of the Jewish nation, albeit that he was kind of planted there by the Romans, John held him to account and he said, because you are leader of God's people, you should not do that. And Herod had John put in prison. John, if you know about John, John's this kind of maverick preacher. Uh, He wore kind of hairy clothes that he'd probably hand-stitched, he had locusts and honey and he lived out in the, in the wilderness. He was kind, this kind of sh- shouting, bawling, calling people to account, voice of God. He was absolutely the right person at the right time saying, you've got to listen. Herod was fascinated by John. He didn't like him in one way because he held him to account because of his actions, but he put him in prison. But, even though he was in prison, he used to get him brought out of prison. Come on up into my court. Let's have a chat. Tell me some stuff. Tell me some stuff about God. I I love it when you talk to me. And ultimately, he got rid of him. When it came a bit too close, when his wife, his new wife, was really, really narked by the behavior of John, she had her daughter dance seductively in front of her stepfather and his mates while they're drunk. That is, I mean, it's just bad stuff, isn't it? When she pleased him, The mother had said, you ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. That's what you you ask for. And that's what he did. I wonder what he thought when he heard that Jesus was on his way. John has been talking to him about this Jesus. And now he gets to see him face to face. John said some amazing stuff. I was really buzzed when I heard John. I wonder what Jesus is going to do. I wonder whether He'll do some of that amazing stuff. Turning water into wine. That would be amazing. Then tomorrow, we'll have a party with the wine that He's made. That would be great. I'll get all the boys around. We'll turn some water into wine. And then I'll keep Him. He'll be my little plaything. That's what He was to Jesus. That's what Jesus was to Herod. This little bit of exciting sideline activity, totally self-serving. It's all about what I get out of it. <laughs> and Herod, and John, I guess Luke is saying in presenting this, Herod is just that kind of character that shines up in in great display to us. The danger. That our attitude towards God, our attitude towards Jesus, our attitude towards faith, is it can be a plaything, something that we just have a bit of fun with, something that is all about how it serves me. It's not about the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the Creator of the universe, come into the world. It's all about what He can do for me. That could, that would be a great thing. Now, here's the interesting thing. Herod has jurisdiction over Jesus, and yet he sends him back to Pilate. Doesn't do anything, ultimately. Sends him back. Verse 18 and 19, the crowd are really pushing for the life of Jesus, and the next named person appears on the scene. The whole crowd shouted, Away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. We know next to nothing about Barabbas other than the next sentence which is in brackets. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. That's who Barabbas was. Of course, the fourth person in contrast to the Barabbas, and, and they really fall uh, as a, an absolute contrast with each other, is Jesus. Jesus and Barabbas. Barabbas, the one who everybody, everybody would agree, he's guilty. <laughs> he, he's clearly guilty. He's cl- guilty of insurrection. He's guilty of murder. He's definitely the person that is the bad guy in these 25 verses. You know, if, you want, if you're not sure about Pilate, if you're not sure about Herod, the one person that you can be sure about is Barabbas. He's the murderer. He's described in that way. The one thing that we see in contrast to Barabbas is Jesus, who does not defend himself... As the innocent one, who moves from Pilate to Herod and back to Pilate. I suggest to you that the Pilate to Herod, back to Pilate, says that both of these men, in their own way, essentially said that Jesus was not guilty. Herod said it, uh, sorry, Pilate said it clearly. I see no guilt in this man. Herod had the right, because he had the jurisdiction over the Galilean, to kill Jesus. To pronounce the death penalty. He had the jurisdiction, and yet he sent him back. What's he saying? For all that I might dislike, the stuff that John said, For all that this Jesus is a bit of a troublemaker, I can't see guilt. The innocent one. And Herod says, uh, Pilate says ultimately, have your way with him, but I can't see anything that displays guilt. Both of those two authorities come together they say innocent, and yet they both serve the wider populace that says guilty. And that is the scandal that is presented to us. The one who has innocence portrayed in the whole of the life that has gone before, compared to the one who is absolutely clearly guilty. It's a scandal, isn't it? It's a scandal. It is a scandalous miscarriage of justice. We've seen some scandalous miscarriages of justice down through the years. I'll dwell on one that was a long time ago, 1949. Timothy Evans was hanged in 1950 for the 1949 murder of his wife and daughter. Fifteen years later, it emerged that John Christie, who was a serial killer, was responsible for the death of those two women. He'd killed his own wife and six other women. The police had missed vital evidence, and he was the chief witness against Evans, and all of his evidence was believed by the court. This case was so important, so dramatic, so massive a miscarriage of justice, that it was directly influential in the abolition of the death penalty in this country in 1965. It was just one of those amazing, incredible miscarriages of justice. And yet the miscarriage of justice that stands above all in history, I would suggest, is the miscarriage of justice with regards to Jesus and Barabbas. The one who doesn't deserve to die dies. The one who does deserve to die doesn't die. What does a miscarriage of justice feel like? There's a really good series, uh, I'm halfway through the second one, um, an comp- organization, charity called Inside Justice, I think it is, that investigates miscarriages of justice. One of those kind of prominent themes that really comes out it is the idea that a miscarriage of justice leaves the victim feeling helpless. The whole system is against them. Everything's against them. The evidence, the key players, they feel helpless. There's nothing that they can do. If you've read a bit of literature, you might have read The Trial by Franz Kafka. Uh, an unknown kind of uh, authority and an unknown crime played out in the story. Uh, and he's, he's left against this, this constantly observing This kind of politic that he he can't stand against, and yet he's lost in this experience. He's helpless. bit 1984-ish. And yet Luke says, I want you to really gaze. I want you to gaze at this event. Because as you see the various colours on the surface... If you gaze a bit deeper, if you look deeper into this, you will see the most amazing thing. That none of this was Jesus losing control. In fact, it was quite the reverse. It was Father and Son together in perfect commitment to a plan of salvation which necessitates the innocent being found guilty so that the guilty might go free. That's what we know about the message of Jesus. And yet, remarkably, it's spoken to us in activity. That Barabbas becomes the very representation of the most guilty who goes free. He goes free. Because Jesus is the one who is found guilty and killed. There is that perfect moment of the substitution of one for the innocent. The substitution of the guilty for the one who has no guilt upon his hands, and yet he bears the guilt. What an amazing picture. I want to ask you the question, as you gaze at it, as we look at it, I want you to think, who is in control of this whole narrative? Who is in control of these events? It looks as if Jesus has just lost control, and yet every moment... Every event, the fact that Herod and Pilate happened to be in Jerusalem at just that time, the fact that Barabbas had been arrested and they were at a point in the celebration of God's people where the guilty was set free, that's part of their history and their their calendar for the year. And then we meet this moment where the one who they choose is absolutely the guilty one. A bit like that picture where you gaze at it. And a whole new form emerges. Because I want to suggest to you, we've talked about four named people in this narrative. But actually, there's a fifth. The fifth named person in the narrative is the reader of the narrative. That's you and me. As soon as we participate in the reading of this event of Jesus and Barabbas, we become immersed in it. We become a part of it. We become those who play a part in this story, in understanding, in interpreting, in seeing, confronting. What does this mean? Why does it happen? It seems to me that the God of heaven is so determined for you and me to understand what it means for us to be saved, that he insists that we understand a few things. Firstly, it is a grisly business for somebody to be saved. There is no easy way around being saved. It demands justice, It can't be treated lightly. Justice is an important thing. Forgiveness, mercy, salvation does not come easily. And it's a grisly business. And it means that there has to be the shedding of blood. But secondly... It seems to me that the only way in which that can work is if the one who bears the price is actually innocent. And it's the moment where Jesus in this narrative becomes absolutely focused in our minds. What, what could be more innocent than the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands and probably millions of innocent lambs that have been sacrificed in all of the Old Testament. Why is that? Why why an innocent lamb? Because it is necessary for innocence to be the bearer of guilt, for true salvation to work. Put quite simply, I couldn't stand in your place any more than you could stand in my place. Why? Because I've got my own guilt that I'm responsible for as much as you've got your own guilt that you're responsible for. And it takes the innocent to step in. Now, isn't it amazing, therefore, that Barabbas goes free? You say, well, hang on a sec, Barabbas, we don't know anything more about Barabbas. I haven't got an amazing revelation that, you know, the later writers in the early church talked about Barabbas, but but, you know, I do wonder, I do wonder if Barabbas had been at the very center of that moment, I think it's entirely possible that Barabbas himself pondered on what had happened, and he may well be sharing eternity with everybody else who believes in Jesus. I think that's quite possible. Because at least what it shows is that Jesus stands in the way of the obvious guilty. Everybody knows that He was guilty. And yet Jesus stands for those who are guilty because of His innocence. What an amazing story. What an amazing picture. I wonder whether... Theophilus was sat there reading this one morning where suddenly the event of Jesus and Barabbas became clear in his mind. Luke doesn't explain it. It doesn't explain it. He says this is what happened. Gaze at the picture. Immerse yourself. And a whole new picture will emerge that great picture of the gospel, the good news of Jesus.